I'm Dr. Sarah Taylor. Uh, my job is I'm the lead data engineer at RMIT University. Um, that is very much a nine to five job, which I've, I, I absolutely enjoy. I'm also a musician in a band called The Taylor Project. I've played live music for about 20 years now, uh, and I completed my PhD thesis at RMIT uh, on the topic of the historical geography of live music in Sydney and Melbourne. And in doing that, I made uh, historical maps of live music over time uh, and also talked to musicians and tried in, in so doing to make sense of those narratives of decline. There was decline over time, but it's really important to realise that it's spatial and personal and it's it's felt spatially, but it doesn't mean that there's aggregate decline in those things. And as part of that, yeah, really became very interested in um, the intersection of music, people, technology, space. It's an evolving story and I'm still watching it now. Not sick of it. Yeah. Yeah, so this is like mildly academic, but it's mm -hmm. more just I wanted to have a chat with you about just these challenges that um, mm -hmm. bands um, have, main, mainly around rehearsal, mm -hmm. um, but al also about gentrification. So how, yep. like, and I, I really liked your bit at the end about basically compact cities, urban density, housing affordability, mm -hmm. how they've just um, impacted this. Yeah, um, and one of the big, like the sort of uh, conspicuous issues was, you know, over particular music venues. But then I think in having the focus on that, there's a lot of other things going on there too, like the restructuring of the music industry, which is related to technology. None of these things are separate, but sometimes yeah. we try to make them separate. Um, so there's anxiety about particular music venues. And in many respects, Melbourne, you know, kind of solved that, I guess, by, you know, community activism to to save particular venues i use that term hesitantly because you can't you can't step in the same river twice <laughs> you're keeping this particular music venue the fact that people are anxious about particular music venues is a sign of other restructuring that was going on with the music industry anyway but in that focus on venues we want venues venues are great this is good um the upshot of that is that um, you keep the venues, but then the places that the people who were in them are living, they're getting pushed further and further away from them into very car-focused outer suburbs and stuff like that. And also, if you're living in apartments, the rehearsal part of it, certainly my experience in the recent years has been, it's okay to get a gig. Organising a rehearsal tends to be a little bit more epic. Um, and it's very... Um, uncasual <laughs> and, and I guess I'll go over my thesis as well because that gives yep. a good backdrop to it but um, over and over again you see that what has worked well with music in cities, there's always going to be music in cities, it's just ridiculous to say it's going to be killed, like that will never ever happen but when it works well in that, that to the extent that people think think of it fondly, look back on it fondly and just feel like there's this sort of energy going on, it's often just been um, because there were spaces where it was okay for people to meet and try stuff out. It wasn't really rigidly trying to be one thing or another. People found each other. They were able to try stuff out. So some of these music venues that you know are still here in Melbourne, um, when, they, when they became important in the 90s, firstly they became important because at that point musicians were starting to do a little bit more of their own organisation and recording and so forth. That was more important at that point. Um, but also they were living near these places. So you'd hear the term stumbling distance. Like it was great because it was in stumbling distance. There wasn't a lot of pressure on it. Um, and they could 
often do their rehearsals in their share houses or garages or just finding each other mm. in a not hugely uh, prescribed kind of way. And then the local venue, it was exciting because other people were there, but it was also not like this epic thing to get there and stuff. So now those venues are still there, but the musicians have moved further afield and they're more scattered. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. I think you've answered my second question, Mm. or you've started to, which Mm. is about the relationship between the city and music. But actually, I'd like to just take one step back and just hear like a snapshot of your own music and band experience and Mm -hmm. kind of what got you here. Yeah. So, well, I was saying before, I have a nine to five job now. I love it. Just for the record, I do love having a tech job. It's very nice because you save energy for other things. Um, I knew how to play music because I've done it at school and stuff but I really really didn't do music actively until I finished uni and got a nine-to-five job and I went hey I've got spare time let's try something out at that point this is the early 2000s um I went to do an open mic at the Empress Hotel in North Fitzroy with my sister Liz and from there we started doing like you know, quote-unquote real gigs, kind of figuring it out as we went. And um, it was really fun. (laughs) And it's been a big part of my life. I'm sure music was always there in the background. Like, it's always been very valuable to me and so forth. But suddenly it went from being a completely, you know, just had no bearing on my... On, on my public life to being an integral part of, you know, what I spent my time on, how I met people, where I put my energy and so forth, um, to the point that I actually can't see what my life would have been like if I hadn't have sort of, you know, got into that world. Um, so in the 2000s, doing very 2000s-style independent music, and I will clarify how that's changed over time, almost always to do with technology, um, Liz and I and, and other band members, we were recording things, putting them on CDs <laughs> um, and doing live shows around Melbourne, which were kind of hard to do, but not that hard. Like it was sort of hard enough that it you know, was worth trying, but not like epically difficult um, and learning as we went and so forth. Um, at the same time, I had a nine to five job, um, which involved maps, I've always worked with maps, geography and data and so forth. And eventually um, I was interested in doing some research and realised that that it had become a great novelty that I had this job and that I did music. And I personally didn't see them as that different because a lot of my work was drawing electoral boundaries. (laughs) Very obscure job, but it was fun at the time. Um, Was about geography, boundaries, you know, human geography and so forth. And you could see that in doing music, everybody had a little mental map of where you could play, not play, what were places where you could meet people, where you could play, um, how to organise your life around this invisible map of, you know, the place where you can be a musician. And it was not coincidental that a lot of people that I knew in that world had moved from elsewhere. They'd moved from interstate, they'd moved from regional areas, they moved to a place where it was possible to be or become a musician in the city and that involved intimate geographic knowledge and very detailed knowledge of which venues you could play at, which venues had stairs, <laughs> which venues were a bit dodgy and scary and which ones were you know, higher status and all that sort of stuff. Um, this world um, was already in people's heads and it involved a lot of dates and locations and dates and locations. Uh, so a moving map, it's about 
geography, but it's not fixed in space, so it's a bit related. Doreen Massey kind of thinking about geography. Uh, so I did my thesis, uh, my doctoral thesis on the historical geography of Melbourne and Sydney live music, and also built around the idea. I actually met Chris Gibson early on. He's a, a really, really interesting person. And then underneath that, I was like, but you know what, I don't think I could move to Sydney because it's really hard to be a musician there. It's a bit shit. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. You yeah, are. Yeah. And that was a, just an absolute given. Like, it was hard in Sydney. Of course, there was music there, but it was hard. There was something just fundamentally difficult about that place. I had musician friends who had moved from Sydney just going, it was rough, and uh, it's really just nicer in Melbourne. And I was interested, what happened? Why... Over the course of several decades, did we get to the point where it was, you know, just absolutely a given that it was hard to be a musician in Sydney, it was hard to get gigs. They had lots of those weird sports bars and pokies and all these sorts of things. And what is the cause of this? And I went into the thesis um, figuring I would make a geo database of live music venues over time because all the old listings they would have dates and locations dates locations so geocode them turn them into a map and then talk to musicians alongside of that at the start i figured i would um look for these changes over time um both like the number of venues and the location of venues and i was envisioning then i would go and here's the point where sydney went bad and here's why um, and here's where things got harder in Melbourne or, you know, that sort of thing. But it sort of never really worked out like that. Absolutely, things did decline, but it became very apparent that we need to be clear what we mean by decline, um, and that's experienced spatially. So it's restructuring um, that is experienced by individu individuals in a very spatially specific way. So over t I found that over time... In Sydney and Melbourne, there was not a decline in the number of live music venues over these de decades. Uh, and for context, uh, early 80s in Sydney, no one would say that was a crap place to be a musician. It seemed to be quite thriving. It had those elements that people talk about fondly. People moved there. Bands like the Hoodoo Gurus, they moved to Sydney on purpose, which is like, that's funny. They went there <laughs> to be musicians. Ha, ha, ha. And that was curious in itself. And I would sort of see... Uh, images of Sydney in the early to mid-80s or like when Paul Kelly moved there as well and I'm like, it looks fun. Like, what happened? Why did it go bad? So looking for that point where decline happened and looking for the causes, but no, decline is not aggregate decline. There wasn't an aggregate decline in the number of live music venues in Sydney or in Melbourne, but there are definitely spatial differences. So I was interviewing musicians who'd been active in 80s, 90s, 2000s in both cities and alongside that had a database from which you could produce maps and stats and stuff like that. Definitely not a database of every live music. There so many of them. <laughs> so, so many of them. But you, snapshots from each year and you'd see the changes. Um, and what you'd see is over time in Sydney from being a sort of, you know, easy enough place to be a musician in the 80s, just sort of stayed fragmented and scattered and stuff. That didn't really matter as much in the 80s, but by the 90s, that mattered a lot, given the way that the music industry generally was restructuring. And in Melbourne, you didn't see either there a decline in the number of music venues. You saw more bands playing less often and in a more concentrated area. And in the 90s, when it was shifting more towards do-it-yourself, 
that was really important. That made it a good place to be a musician, a vulnerable place to be a musician because that's where gentrification really bites because you want and need to be near other people and be near venues and so forth. And live music started to be concentrated in particular venues. So while they were thriving places like the Planners Club or the Esplanade Hotel, there's also an intense vulnerability there that makes you very conscious of things like noise complaints um, and just closures or even pokies, which were more of a thing in... in uh, in Sydney, I've always found that a marvel. Like Sydney, the pokies, because of the way they were regulated, they encroached upon multiple pubs. Whereas in Melbourne, pokies arrived in 1990, I think, um, and the regulations were very uh, idiosyncratic, but basically meant that we have the pheno phenomenon in Victoria of the pokies pub, and they were just totally separate to other pubs. They're strange places, but yeah, distributed differently. Um, and that thesis helped to explain to me where I came in. I came in at the end of that time frame when it was still possible to do it yourself, still possible to play at some of these venues. doesn't mean it was an idyllic time and everything was easy or whatever, but there were some barriers that perhaps a bit later were, were higher. And I would reasonably expect that if I had lived in Sydney, I wouldn't have been a musician. And if I had a started out doing this maybe 10 years later I also wouldn't have been a musician also in the 80s I wouldn't have been because it was a whole other thing it was really expensive and yeah other problems then yeah so um so much there sorry uh no that's amazing um and I wanted to pick up on the reconfiguration of space mm -hmm. there so I assume there's a few things going on there's mm -hmm. gentrification mm -hmm. there's possibly cultural change mm -hmm. around music. Yeah. Later on there's digital, but I want to ask mm -hmm. you about that specifically mm -hmm. later. Um, and you're talking about two different types of reconfiguration of mm -hmm. space. You're talking predominantly about venues where you play mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. um, but of course there is rehearsal yeah. space as well. Could you just maybe try to tell me about those two spaces and mm -hmm. how these kind of long, I know that's very complicated, but how these mm. changes over time kind of impact those two spaces. Yeah. So the venue is where you come into the world, where people find you and so forth, but you would hope that before that you've actually tried something out. Uh, <laughs> and talking to musicians over different eras, it was like fairly normal in the 80s that even if you're impoverished you might be living in a share house and therefore you can use a garage or you can use bedrooms you can just sort of find each other and just sort of swing together a rehearsal without a great deal of overhead of course you can get a formal rehearsal space and they've been around that so that some of the key instigators of the live music activism in melbourne in the 2010s they ran ran or run the rehearsal space bakehouse studios um the ability to make noise without people complaining is kind of a key <laughs> requirement to, to being able to figure out music. And you know, recently I was reading that um, Jarvis Cocker book and he's just saying how mortified he was when he was rehearsing as a teenager because he knew that people would hear, you know, and that he felt really self-conscious about it. But for him in Sheffield in the 70s or 80s, yeah, 80s, they, there were lots of, you know, spaces that weren't claimed just they're not doing anything in particular. They're perfect for musicians. Just And a, a place that it doesn't have to be a rehearsal studio. When you were saying before, like, a dedicated rehearsal studio, I don't think any of the musicians, I don't want to 
use an absolute statement there, but I would struggle to think of any of the musicians that I talked to who are active 80s, 90s, that actually needed or used a dedicated rehearsal studio. Um, they rehearsed and found each other in their own time. What's really interesting is that um, the actual translating that into recording, that's a key thing that happened in that period as well. Before that, you could find other, other musicians and rehearse in your share house, in your garage. Garages are great because they don't have to be anything. They're that and then they change. And a lot of venues that people have loved, they weren't meant to be venues. They weren't built as venues and that's makes them lower pressure. It doesn't matter if it doesn't quite work out. Some of those really famous places like Studio 54 or even in Melbourne when there was a thriving music scene in St Kilda in the late 70s, these were places that weren't meant to be venues and they were reappropriated as that. In, in all that era, rehearsal was an afterthought. Finding a space for that was not a big deal. You'd figure something out. Your neighbours probably didn't care. I don't even... The thing is, maybe there was a lot of noise. There just wasn't really a culture of complaining <laughs> about it. And there would have been a lot of other industrial noises at that time as well. But, yeah, it was not thought about. It was, you know, just you'd figure it out probably in a share house and even if you know you probably know someone who is and even better you might have a garage to do it but yeah dedicated rehearsal space wasn't required or needed in the 80s um the idea of recording was like quite amazing so the really expensive and really highly gate kept places were recording studios the cost of recording an album was extraordinary to me uh, just mind-bogglingly expensive um so getting access to these sort of places was and spaces was really am amazing but it was assumed of course you just rehearse somewhere if you watch that movie dogs in space they're just rehearsing in the lounge room it was that part was easy getting the sort of formal recording and stuff that part was very expensive but the you know the fun stuff basically was hmm. not not hard you just figure figure out with all the space that you had available to you um i reckon when i started doing music it was in that interim phase where um you know obviously gentrification was at work but i mostly knew people who were still in share houses um it was getting a little bit harder to to um you know to to be a musician I guess but um, it still wasn't just uh, um, a lot of effort I imagine like later of course you can still do it but the effort to organize a rehearsal or to get a gig you have to put more time into publicizing those things and that is so not fun it's just like work <laughs> just, yeah so that's changed over, over time Access to different things has changed. Yes, you can record quite easily now, but it's harder to just find each other. And I can't emphasise enough how much that um, balance has shifted over time. Recording was hard and expensive. Meeting people, rehearsing was quite easy. Now, total opposite, yeah. Like, you can record anything at home. The first semblance of being able to do home recording really was 80s with those Porter Studio things and if you read a lot of musician biographies as I do you'll go oh, here we go here comes the Tascam Porter Studio again that was an exciting moment where that energy of meeting other people and trying stuff out um, could be captured in a recording um, over time that, that can be a bit of a curse when you can record almost anything without meeting other people that's not necessarily very creatively 
enjoyable either. But yeah, that's completely shifted um, over time. Real Hopefully, true. you can edit what I said then because you have oh, amazing no. recording equipment now yes. to edit that down. But yeah, it used to be an afterthought. Like many things, you don't realize how easy it was until it's just suddenly actually quite difficult. I'm sure people in the 80s would be amazed at the recording stuff that we have access to now, a uh, number of tracks you can record and all that sort of stuff. But they wouldn't realise how how easy it was for them in terms of just finding a place to 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 try stuff out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I guess I started playing drums in the early night. No. Is this in uh, Sydney? In Sydney in, in yep. the eighties. Yeah. And we just play. I just learnt drums in the in the garage. Absolutely. Like just bashing away mm-hmm. at the drums just in the daytime mm-hmm. and on the weekends. Yep. And you kind of were. You know, respectful of the neighbors, mm-hmm. you're like, you cut. And then when I got in a band, we just started jamming. Yeah, jamming, yeah. In the, in the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it's interesting because I never really thought about it. Mm. After that, then mm. we went to the rehearsal studio yeah. like sometime yeah. in the like early 90s. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's like the birth of the kind of rehearsal space yeah. time. Um, and it does kind of like map on to like first wave gentrification yeah yeah when you actually need to find a bit of space to do this and you're just like actually if i make a lot of noise this might be a bit of a problem um ironically you know in that period recording comes into the home but rehearsal goes out of the home like things are shifting in that time yeah you're thinking thinking about it differently yeah awesome um we're all you're ticking off all my um questions gentrification Pre-gentrification landscape. Yeah, and gentrification yep. bit differently in Sydney and Melbourne and, of course, intersected with the different regulations they had about other uses of space. So in Sydney, the regulations, uh, without really intending to, they made it really, if you read Shane, Shane Homan's work, um, conclusively shows you know the impact of things like um, pokey machines in Sydney. And, of course, we have pokies here, but they've played out differently, liquor licensing, the... Um, the uh, what's it? Something related to fire safety in the, in Sydney. Again, not done on purpose, but you couldn't have drafted a more effective oh, place of public entertainment. All these things intersecting with gentrification meant that in Sydney, yes, you could still do music in the nineties. And of the people I talked to, a lot of them said it was around the Olympics that they just went, "This is just just so not. <laughs> this is awful." Um, they are all intersecting together, and you feel it spatially. So in Sydney, all these things on top of each other, in, combined with amazing gentrification, um, just meant that it was expensive to live there, hard to find other musicians, like just actually find them, um, expensive to do whatever you're doing, and you know you're competing with things like pokey machines and with overheads that are uh, regulatory overheads and so forth just hard and you come to Melbourne in that time and get a bit of a reprieve but gentrification was still going on there it's just um it was still relatively easy then and you could you know live the dream like being a musician near other people who lived in share houses and just figuring it out from there yeah um so this is a picture of my house Ah. um and so it's I live in a house with three kids. You got the electric drum So kit. we've got... Yep. Um, Volume so, control. So we do go to the studio mm-hmm. quite often and play acoustically and loud. Mm-hmm. But we can just set up like this in yep. the back room. And well, like as the, kid, the kids mm-hmm. are literally asleep and we're yep. practicing here, which is like one of the interesting technological changes mm-hmm. along with, um, 
you know, just being able to share stuff mm-hmm. on, on the yep. on the web. Uh, I would like to. Could you tell me a little bit about the digital transformation? Mm-hmm. And I guess I've been talking to. So do you know Al from Zen Studios in Sydney? Did you ever talk to him? No. He's I like so Zen Rehearsal Studios, like twenty plus years of mm-hmm. been gentrified, gentrified, and they've held the line <laughs> out of multiple places and yeah. reset up and uh, then gentrified, yeah. gentrified mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually says it's very hard to run a rehearsal business now. Mm-hmm. Never, like, he never said it as clearly as you, mm-hmm. but this idea that um, it's hard to find people. It's easy to collaborate online, but mm-hmm. hard to find people. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is he thinks that people are doing more of what that, so mm-hmm. more of practising at home and yep. then three weeks before their gig mm-hmm. just like cramming at the rehearsal studio. Absolutely what I did at my last gig, yeah. Yeah, yep. so like yep. this sort of digitisation effect, what's, how would you? It's so interesting that, okay, I didn't, with my thesis, I didn't go in making it about technology, but when you talk about music, you're always talking about technology. It's always part of it. It's never not been a part of it, unless you're talking about singing, pretty much every other form of music is some sort of interaction between a human and a piece of technology so from i I guess you could even say the body is a technology yeah true true (laughs) so it's always been there it's not like we had no technology in music and then it changed um it's helpful to to view that as a process that's always been going on but it's it's a profound a lasting impact but it's always in motion and there's great writing about how music can be you know a great a precursor of what's going to happen to everyone else later because it's early adopter of whatever's happening with technology and because it's such a human thing um it's expression and you know take what what can a human add to this and then intersect it with business as well and you get this revolving it's it's beautiful it's never stopped being interesting (laughs) but so we have recording starting you know in the 20th century the fact the very fact that of recording music changed how people did it what it sounded like all that kind of stuff um more recently in the period of my thesis so getting into the 80s um at that point musical equipment was still quite expensive Um, recording was very very expensive but that was what was the most exciting thing to do because it was very unusual to record music and very exciting if you heard a recording of it. Um, this is the period where people would pay lots of money to buy physical recordings of music and then, of course, there's the um, business infrastructure attached to that world. Um, you organised live music based on the fact that recorded music was expensive and profitable. So in that era, um, people would play live music in much more distributed locations because it was probably being organised by someone else with the idea that you do the live shows in order to sell the live recordings uh, to to sell the recordings and that recording was so expensive that the only way you could do it would be to enter into a sort of contract with an organisation like a booking agency, record company etc. That's both good and bad the great thing is you know other people are organising it, they'll take care of it, you don't have to liaise with gig, liaise with venues or deal with any of that crap they're in control the bad thing is exactly that <laughs> like but you know there's two sides to every coin so that was 
really difficult aspect about music in the 80s, intimately related to the fact that recording costs were high, but also that you could profit from selling those recordings. So many musicians, uh, by default, you're interacting with those organisations. There's a small section who, you know, that's when independent meant you independently did these recordings and so forth. It was still expensive. Um, in the 90s, what's changing there? We're not quite digital, but... Um, the cost of recording is plummeting. The cost of uh, music equipment is going down in the 90s. It is changing. We haven't yet got to the, you know, the 2000s level MP3 thing, but there are big changes going on there where you can pay for your own recordings, you can organise your own shows and so forth, but also the selling of those recordings, in some ways it's still profitable because they're selling everything again on CD. This is the 90s is when the agglomeration of the music industry globally is really, really peaking. It's just about to collapse. Um, that meant that in the 90s, you a lot of musicians really aspired to record. They viewed live music as an aside to that. Um, uh, it wasn't as expensive to record, but it was still very exciting. Um, some people were doing it at home, and you know, some of the more sort of edgy musicians at that time that we know of, like Beck, what distinguished them as being a bit edgy is that they did their own recording. And if you look at, say, Jesus and Mary Chain or The Smiths, um, or closer to home, um, who's that guy from The Lemonheads? Can you t edit this out that I can't remember his name? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, um, he did a lot of stuff on his four-track recording studio, and at that time that was exciting and new, and you could do whatever you want because it's a wild west frontier thing. Um, but then by the two thousands, that expectation becomes you have to do it all yourself, <laughs> um, and more and more when you can record yourself, when you can release stuff online. These are all really exciting when at the start because it frees you from that structure of, you know just businesses who are often just creepy or whatever, um, you're freed from that. But then uh, I would recommend on this, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Herak's writings about Canada. Um, absolutely, what's great about that digital change has been what's hard about it too. Um, Justin Hazelwood, he wrote that book, Fun Employed, captures it well. He describes being in his underpants, writing emails about gigs and stuff. With digital recording, recording is so, so cheap. We're talking like 30, 40 years ago, it was like $50,000. And that is not adjusted for inflation. It's mind-boggling. It was a mortgage. The great part about that is that if you're in a mortgage, your bank, or in this case your record company, they are invested in you. They are going to push you to succeed and take care of your touring circuit and make all these things happen. Um, but later on, yeah, you can do everything yourself and then eventually you have to do everything yourself. And that includes some things which, while it's... in initially fun to have that not um, controlled by gatekeepers and you know a little bit of creative control over these things you can't underestimate that there's a lot of energy that goes into organizing shows publicizing in terms of recorded music oh god the amount of time that people spend mixing stuff getting it just right etc there is a trade-off there humans you've only got so much energy and technology at its best is when you go wow now I can do this cool thing that I didn't expect and this other thing happens when it starts to really not work you are you forget what you're even there for you because you can spend as much time as you want doing the recording and the mixing and so forth that can be terrible you can spend as much time as you want and it could go on for years etc the fact that it's cheap can be a problem because people are expected to do it all themselves and there's 
no sort of concentrated time in which you just go, all right, this is enough and I'm going to put all my human energy into this and then move on. If you think about Sun Studios era, they, in that time, people paid for a very short period of recording and they gave it everything they could in that time and because of that, they had to rehearse a lot <laughs> so that by the time that you actually recorded something, you'd rehearse it so well that you sounded amazing. Now, because you can record and transfer and stuff, you might not think that you need to rehearse as much and you can probably get away with it. It's probably not going to be very good. So also I'd recommend David Burns's writings on this. He's like, of course technology is going to be here. You can't be like, we've got to go back to the olden days when there was no digital recording. That would be insane. But you have to sort of recognise when the technology is helping and when it's draining you and when that admin type stuff of, hey, wow, you can publicise your own gig. You're like, hang on, this is like writing emails and doing stuff in Photoshop. This sounds like a job. This sucks. Like, you kind of need to distribute your energy correctly and I think there's a lesson for that in for, for any kind of endeavour, not just music, a lot of jobs, you know, just go, is this actually helpful, helping or is this just draining my human energy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are... So, two things. Um, one of them is... So I have a, one of my mates' fans, they refuse to do anything digital. We never record. We only play live, no recording, mm. um, which is... Purist. Weird. weird. Yeah. Um, but that's not what I'm I can asking. see the logic of it, but yeah. Um, it, well, it goes to what's the purpose of this mm. endeavour. A lot yeah. of people, like increasingly, if you look online, looking for a band member don't like we are a bunch of people that rehearse once a week and mm -hmm. maybe play every now and then we have jobs and families mm -hmm. like this kind of winding back the expectations yeah. of what this thing is um, I find that quite interesting mm. because everybody thinks that every musician wants to be a pro musician and yeah <laughs> yeah um, but that's not what I want to ask mm -hmm. you I think that's interesting I did want to ask you digitization mm -hmm. what are the spatial oh, implications spatial. in the city yeah that? okay um so there's, again, recording, rehearsal, performance and so forth. Um, if you think back, uh, uh, noise complaints and so forth, they're often about the technology making noises. So, um, you know, the amplifiers and so forth. Um, in terms of, yes, you, like in your picture, you can rehearse more with some of these cool digital things. It's a great workaround for when, realistically, a lot of musicians now are living in apartments. Yep, so digital drum kits and pianos, um, you can adjust the volume on them. That's actually super useful. It's still nice to have people around. One of the, I think, became clear during lockdown stuff is like, yes, you can see a video of someone online, but it's actually not in real time. It's really hard. You can't actually realistically rehearse that well because there is a lag. Um, I think it's one of those brain-bending things where you're like, oh, I could rehearse. No, it actually doesn't work because... Rehearsing requires you to be in time with someone, which as much as digital stuff gives us the impression that we're talking to someone at the same time, there is actually a bit of a lag. So that's where music's a brilliant, like it's right at the cutting edge of like where technology and people intersect. Um, we can kind of uh, um, suspend disbelief for work meetings and stuff like that. But with music, yeah, it's very difficult to rehearse unless you're um, actually in the same space. But some of those tools, very useful. Like you can change the volume. You've probably got people above and below you if you're in an apartment. Um, as soon as you're paying for a rehearsal space, you're saying, I am serious. And that 
is like a bit of a buzzkill sometimes, <laughs> a big buzzkill. And, you know, that's really changed as well because, like, even a really successful musician now, they're probably not making that much money. You kind of have to go, what am I getting out of this? I want this to be at least halfway fun. And the opposite of fun is, like, over-investing, over-expecting. It is so not fun. Like, I've spent $200 on this rehearsal space. This better be good. It's And historically, when live music scenes have really worked there weren't those kinds of expectations so paying for a space to rehearse is super useful I think it tends to happen now when you know for sure that you've got a big event coming up you don't just do it for the heck of it Um, it's like we know we've got this thing we should get together and we'll rehearse this one time other time people will do rough recordings send it whatsapp's really good for that because you can send a rough recording and then just share it with people that's quite handy so that when you do finally get together to rehearse um then you're a little bit more prepared i've had rehearsals in an apartment the understanding is that i'd better not do it regularly because my neighbors will like get annoyed Uh, i don't know anyone who actually has a garage anymore I would be highly envious if they did, but most people who have garages in the inner to middle suburbs have more money and less time, and if you look in their garages, they've got stuff in there, lots of stuff. Um, So, you know, in in many respects, these tools help us get around the fact that we can't just casually rehearse, but, um, you know, that you do need to meet up with people physically at some point. People will improvise, and that's where music is a great kind of... You know, it's a parable of humans and technology and and gentrification or whatever. It's just, if you want to follow what's happening, look to that. Um, People will find a way. They'll take the good parts of the technology and the bad parts. And I think with that, like, I'm not serious about music stuff, there is an element there where, you know, people do have to spend a lot of time on computers already. It's not exciting to spend more. We want to, um, one of my um, sort of in-jokes is when I see ads for computer products and stuff, they usually show people doing something not on a computer. Baking, working as a florist or running a cafe or something like that. They don't seem to show people doing rehearsals, but there's definitely an appeal in not doing, like digital work stuff all the time all the time so the music rehearsal and gigs are kind of the opposite of that and we keep it yeah after the hype cycle's done with music then you go this part of the technology is really handy volume control is really handy this other part oh and sharing files is really handy but you know some of it's not going to be very good and no you don't want to spend two years mixing and uh, mastering your album because it's actually you'll just be sick of it yeah yeah and um I mean, that's interesting. I never thought about that flick from album recording mm-hmm. to live. So yeah. the live was to promote the album. Yeah. And now, like, the uh, also, like, release of a, mm-hmm. like, record one thing, release. Yeah. Just record. this drip feeding of mm-hmm. releases, I think, is yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it's gone back to the... So the album period in, in the biggest scheme of things was the anomaly. So if you think back to the 50s, Brill era... Bill, you know, songwriters, that was single-based as well. You had to have a good hit single. I uh, highly recommend a, a book from about 10 years, I think, uh, The Song Machine, talking about those, you know, those highly produced pop songs. I love them too. They're great. Um, because we went through the album period, where, which was very much a product of um, physical album sales being profitable, um, that's ended. Now it's more about singles again. It's sort of come full circle um, and then the ability to write songs and produce songs is highly valued um, and obviously the physical 
product has changed, but it's it's quite trippy. Back eighties and nineties, you would tour to promote your <laughs> recording, and then you had the period where touring was profitable. And I don't know if that's even profitable now. I think it's probably like, more like licensed products and stuff like that, and cross promotion and so forth. These things are always changing, and music's a great, uh, you know example of where things are headed with all these which and they're always changing um i've used up a lot of your time i just wanted to wrap up with one question and that's about um so you have this great quote about policymakers being sensitive to Mm. what's happening in the city Mm -hmm. um and it's tied to this the type of spaces we want, the type of spaces that policymakers think musicians oh, want, um, and so you've got this oh, um, discussion yeah. about low risk, low risk spaces, yes. and, yeah. and you know, just basically the garage being the perfect model. Oh, for it's brilliant! Yeah, yeah, and it it is hard when when policymakers do get involved, and you're like, oh, they're trying. I don't want to like bag it out and stuff. Like, good good to make an effort, but. It's not that there's something magical about garages or even in the case of the internet, there was nothing magical about the internet either. All these moments where a space is unclaimed and its use is not yet prescribed are so fun and so exciting. That's what works rather than the specific spaces and it's pretty much the opposite of planning spaces. In that article I mentioned, the car parks. I would love a garage. I know so many people would love a garage. I have one musician friend who had moved from Sydney um, back in the bad old days. He now lives in Preston and he got one of those villa unit things and he did convert his garage into a recording studio, so he made this happen. If he had bought an apartment that had a parking space rather than a garage, good luck with turning that into a recording studio. Garages are wonderful spaces because... you they're not prescribed you can do a bunch of stuff then pack it up and then use it for something else when there was that era of having dance parties in the docklands that was exciting because it was meant to be one thing now it's another thing and now it doesn't matter um the risk is so low that even if it doesn't really work it doesn't matter um and a great buzzkill is to have a huge amount of expectation attached to any event um, because it can never live up to that. And you, the more you've invested in it, the less it happens. So with policymakers helping save venues has been useful, um, but it's also important to not view them as uh, you know historical um, artefacts or whatever. Yes, the venues are important, but they were places where things were happening and that was also useful to take note of so look at what musicians are doing now and what things are hard for them and try to make that not as hard um car i can't count how many cars car parking spaces i see all you can do all that you're allowed to do with them is put a car in them that's it you're not allowed to do anything else garages which most musicians can't afford you can do a whole bunch of stuff with them you know, it's it's open, um, and when you have exciting places like warehouses and you know those those dream creative spaces, it's what's cool about them is it doesn't really matter. You can try out this or try out that. And now, if we if we on and that's a very strong if on the assumption we actually want to have music around, try to look more at what people are doing and what's difficult about that, and just try actively to not stop it, make it harder because it's so easy to just stop these things Um, and when gentrification bit on certain venues that bit more because wherever people were moving to it got harder and harder to start something up like we want to have those lower risk things where you can just give it 
give it a go. <laughs> and if I could pay policymakers to never allow parking spaces ever again, I would love it. And there's a building right near me that's um, going to be his, uh, heritage listed, a big brutalist car park. I actually think it's beautiful. It's a really cool, but it would be so much nicer if you could just make it a place where you go, this bunch of people, do what you want with it. And then we'll, you know, move on to something else. Um, and Yanto, where in Adelaide, he was onto that with the, you know, like there's a lot of unused spaces, letting people try them out and try to have things where you have absolutely minimal publicity, more regular events, just see where it goes. Um, and if you find yourself having to write a proposal for it or anything like that, kill it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's the opposite of doing something. It's, it, yeah. Funny. Yeah.